This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. This week, a special town hall all about alternative policing models. As communities examine the way that traditional policing is currently done, we see more and more questions on how police respond to people in mental and behavioral health crises. How and where is this current model coming up short? And what are some alternative approaches that could be more effective, less expensive, could result in better outcomes, and most importantly, could save lives? We've convened an expert panel to talk about these models, their benefits, their costs, and their implementation. This was recorded live on the evening of May 4th, and our producer, Kat Pipkin, introduces our guests. Dr. Amy Catherine Watson is a professor in the social work department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her research is focused on police encounters with persons with mental illnesses and the crisis intervention team, or SIT, model. She's also conducted research on mental health courts and prison reentry programs. Her current work is looking at models to reduce and eliminate or eliminate the role of law enforcement in mental health crisis response, excuse me. Tim Black is director of consulting for the Whitebird Clinic in Eugene, Oregon. Whitebird Clinic launched CAHOOTS, Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, as a community policing initiative in 1989. Tim has an extensive background in direct service, harm reduction, and mobile crisis intervention. He's currently focused on assisting communities and municipal governments in the development and implementation of programming based on the CAHOOTS model of behavioral health first response service. We're so glad you're here tonight, Tim. And finally, a fan favorite, Senator Monica Dengra is the Deputy Majority Leader of the Washington State Senate. She's also Chair of the Senate Behavioral Health Subcommittee and Vice Chair of the Senate Law and Justice Committee. She was selected as one of the Washington branch uh, excuse me. She was selected as one of the Washington branch of the National Alliance on Mental Illnesses 2019 Behavioral Health Champions for her commitment to improving the entirety of Washington's behavioral health system. Senator Dengro serves as a deputy prosecuting as a senior deputy prosecuting attorney with King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office as chair of the Therapeutic Alternative Unit. She helped develop and oversee the Regional Mental Health Court. She's also a former instructor at the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission for the 40-hour crisis intervention training for law enforcement officers. Before we start, we want to note the importance of this work and to acknowledge that outcomes are often literally life and death. Because of that, we very much want your input and we want to make sure your questions are answered. So we're going to be devoting the last 30 minutes directly to Q&A. Dr. Watson and Tim, as well as Uh, Senator Dengra have generously agreed to stay to answer as many of our questions as we can get to. So please enter them in the chat bar as we go. And with that, I'll turn things over to our moderator, Stephen Cox. And thank you so much, Kat, for all of that. And welcome to our distinguished panel and certainly to our many distinguished guests watching here tonight. We are honored and grateful to have you all here. And before I start, I want to acknowledge that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. Um, We are going to spend the bulk of our time tonight talking about alternative models uh, for behavioral and mental health crises. But I'd like to kind of start by getting a context of both where we are and I'd like to define our terms a bit, if we may. So Dr. Watson, and you have asked me to call you Amy, so I shall. Let's start with you. What do what do we mean when we talk about a mental or behavioral health crisis? That's basically a situation where someone's experiencing stressors that overwhelm their capacity to cope. So those stressors could be acute symptoms of mental illness. 
could be life disruptions or loss, interpersonal conflict. It's usually a combination of things that really overwhelm that person, and they may be experiencing significant distress, um, agitation. Um, they may be feeling suicidal. They may be very frightened um, and feeling out of control and disoriented. And people in this scenario often can include people with developmental disabilities as well? Absolutely. So we know that this can vary, but under the current police model, give us an idea of what generally happens when police are called to respond to a mental health crisis situation. Amy, what, what transpires? So a call may come into 911 it, and they dispatch officers. Oftentimes, one or two officers will arrive on scene. Um, you know, they'll talk to who's there and, you know, depending on the situation, and how officers approach the situation, it may escalate, um, or they may be able to de-escalate the situation and sort of work through what an out a good outcome would be. And that could be just resolving it on the scene. It could be transporting the person to an emergency department or crisis center, or if there's some criminal content, there may be a an arrest. But they're relatively limited in what their options are. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, and we're going to have a number of questions about this, particularly when we get to the CAHOOTS program as well. But in this instance, when 911 is, is currently called in these situations, there are generally two responses, in my understanding. Either a police officer is dispatched who is armed or an EMT. Who makes that determination in that moment? My understanding is that you have a call taker who assesses it and makes the decision. Um, in communities that I've worked in, oftentimes if it's a mental health call, they'll be sending both to the scene. And I wanna get into some of those, those blended and hybrid scenarios uh, in earnest here in just a moment. But you know, Tim, when you and I were speaking before we began uh, in, in preparation for all of this, you mentioned that you feel that dispatch codes themselves can some ways inform the way that police respond. I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, the, the one really prime example that comes to mind is, is the concept of the EDP, the emotionally disturbed person. Uh, and, and frequently we hear that, you know, this code is used by police dispatch and, and really labeling a situation as, as emotionally disturbed person really, in, in one, reduces that individual to their set of symptoms in that moment, uh, but also really infers that there's this perception of danger um, or, you know, this unknown element and that that requires officers to then enter into those situations with a lot of you know, potential means of force, you know, alongside that there's this assumption that because this person is disturbed, that inherently they're going to, this is going to be a dangerous interaction. And that is just, you know, really ultimately dangerous to the patient uh, and really reductive, you know, it, it denies the whole person uh, that's experiencing that crisis. And indeed, I will note that the Washington Post reported as long ago as 2015 that 25% of uses of lethal force by police involve someone with a mental illness. Um, Amy, I know you've done a lot of study on how race plays into current response models. What can you tell us about that? So, I mean, we know that we all know about implicit bias and it exists everywhere, not just in policing. So it can come into play, you know, when if there's a citizen who's making a call to 911 on somebody else, that bias can come into play on who get, who's making that call, what information that they're relaying. Um, it comes into play at the call taker and dispatch level as well in, in terms of what we're assessing as dangerous, uh, what we're assessing as criminal. 
Um, and then, of course, if police officers are dispatched, um, race also comes into play in terms of how they define a situation and what skill set they're drawing on to respond. Um, so certainly we know that in communities of color, um, you know, there's going to be the tendency that we see, the bias that we see is defining things as more dangerous and more criminal. Um, and that's going to then impact what skill set an officer is going to pull out to respond. So they may have good um, crisis intervention training, um, but do they define this as a situation where that's what I'm going to use? And we're definitely going to be spending extra time on crisis intervention training uh, with both you and the senator. And, and Senator, I would love to bring you in. Before I do, I just want to say to people who are just joining us right now, first of all, thank you for your patience. We know that uh, logging in tonight has been a little bit of a challenge. So uh, welcome. Uh, you haven't missed much. We're, we're really just uh, getting started right now. So Senator Dingra, um, research, in fact, Amy's research shows that even though most people experiencing a mental health crisis are not involved in criminal behavior, Having a police response increases the likelihood of arrest and involvement with the legal system. Can you talk about how you've seen this play out on the legal side? Absolutely. Um, you know, having a behavioral health crisis is not illegal. However, the only option that currently we have, if you want help, is to call 911. Um, that crisis is a cry for help. However, our response is through law enforcement. And I actually have an example to give you from my time at the prosecutor's office. Um, there was a law enforcement agency that, you know, 911 called, and this goes right back to the dispatch um, question and uh, the race issue as well. And the information they received were was from individuals in their car saying that as they were traveling, there was a young black male who was pointing a gun in their direction. And cops got a couple of calls, 911 calls, talking about this young black male with a um, gun. And so the cops showed up um, to the scene, they saw a young man, and there was another female kind of far away, not too close to him. And the, the female officer pulled out her gun, gave a warning, and fired a shot. Luckily, she missed. Turns out it was a gun made out of black Legos. This was a developmentally disabled young adult and um, who had a provider with him who was taking him for his daily walk. And he took this toy gun and was pointing it at cars, um, but it was, it was made out of Lego blocks. And um, he was saved because the officer missed. This is something where it, it just shocks me even today, um, you know, there were the office had written it up for charges to be filed and um we at the prosecutor's office did not file any charges um for this for this young adult but that's just one example of so many times that what people perceive as dangerous behavior is in fact not dangerous at all and um you know how do you sit there and piece it out as to what needs a criminal justice response versus what needs a behavior health response and this is where Training for dispatch really is important for them to be able to ask the right questions and provide the um, information to officers that respond to the scene. It's also critical for an officer in that scene to be able to fully comprehend what's going on, to take that step back and truly understand what they're perceiving. Perception is, is again, just, just so um, different based on 
where you're coming from. And there is this perception, I will say in law enforcement, that their job is extremely dangerous. But if you actually look at the statistics, it is not as dangerous as the perception of how dangerous their job is. And so if you go into a scene always assuming um, the worst, that's the reaction you're going to have. And in all of this, we cannot forget the fact that as Americans, we unfortunately have a lot of guns that are available and around. And so anytime you're responding to a crisis, that access to a weapon is something that is always uh, in the back of the individual's minds when they're responding. But I'm sure we have lots of other follow-up questions and details on how to unpack this. We, we do. And boy, you, you, everything that you said, I was taking notes here, and there were so many things that I did want to follow up on. Um, I, I will just uh, kind of uh, button it by saying we're very lucky to have a prosecutor like you in a position where you would not file charges in a situation like that. But we know that that's not always the case. Um, I want to talk about the historical context of this, if we can, because I think it's something that we sort of take for granted. But I would love to dig into why and how we got to this point where police are having to respond to mental health crises. And Amy, I know you've written a lot about this, um, and I also know that it is a very meaty topic, and this is something that could be talked about um, any number of different ways. But I'm wondering if you could just give us sort of a a thumbnail of of how we got here. Sure. So, I mean, a lot of it goes back to deinstitutionalization as we move people out of state psychiatric facilities, which was a good thing. We needed to do that. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't develop a comprehensive community mental health system that provided people with the supports and services that they needed. And I know in, in most states in recent decades, we've seen further cuts to mental health budgets. Um, we also, when we define commitment criteria, uh, we often define it based on dangerousness. And in most states, police have that role in emergency apprehension of people who need to have an emergency involuntary assessment. Um, so we started to define things as a police role and attached to danger. Um, and as mental health budgets kept shrinking, um, we've been better able to leverage extend on the side of the criminal justice system to to fill in the gaps. Um, and so, you know, we don't have a right to health care in the community unless we're institutionalized. Um, but if we have a situation that ends up being handled by police because they're the only available responders and it doesn't go well, we can sue police departments. And we've had some success pushing that way, looking at civil rights violations. Um, so again, we've expanded on that side and police really, you know, we've defined them having a role. And then that's the place where we've been able to, to leverage resources to try to fill in gaps. Unfortunately, that means that we've further defined mental health and behavioral health crisis as a criminal justice problem when it really needs to be shifted back to the healthcare system. I'll say, you know, one of the fundamental points is that when people need help, the only guarantee they have that someone will show up is law enforcement. They can call the designated crisis responders and many times they'll say we'll be there in four hours or we'll be there in 24 hours. But the only entity that has a responsibility to respond is law enforcement. And when you put that level of responsibility there, then everything that happens goes through law enforcement because they're the only ones who are told they have to show up. 
this is a perfect opportunity for us to go ahead and talk about some of the alternative approaches, because that is certainly why uh, we have a packed house tonight. There are many models, but I would like to focus on three basic ones, and we can discuss a few hybrids as well. The first model uh, is training police to deal with mental health crises. This is the the CIT or SIT model, um, and I I know certainly Senator and Amy, I know you're both very familiar with this, Uh, dispatching police and mental health professionals to respond to mental health crises together in a police vehicle. This is called the co-responder model, if I'm not mistaken. And then the third model is the mobile crisis and medic response with no first response by police in a non-police vehicle. And this is the model used by Cahoots. And uh, Tim, we're, we're going to, I'll just let you know, we're going to talk about the first two models first, and then we're going to take uh, ample amounts of time to, to really unpack uh, Cahoots. So I hope you'll just ask, I'll, I'll ask for your patience here while we uh, go through the first two. Um, so in terms of the first model, the SIT model, giving specialized training to police officers to respond to a mental health crisis. Um, Senator Digger, I know you're very, very familiar with this. You've taught this. And and this, again, is one of those big, meaty questions. It varies, of course. But what does the training entail? How many hours? What what are some of the, 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 the top notes that you can tell us about this? Absolutely. And, you know, when we're talking about crisis intervention training, you have different kinds, right? We actually mandate and require an eight-hour during basic law enforcement academy, which really eight hours on behavioral health, it, it's it's not sufficient at all. Then we have a 40-hour crisis intervention training. And, um, you know, over a decade ago, that was first made voluntary in, in King County. And so officers could, uh, could just take it if they were interested in the 40-hour training. And over the years, uh, a lot of agencies have made that mandatory. So Uh, The eight hour is very basic. It goes through diagnoses, things like that. The 40 hour is a lot meatier because it is a five day um, program. So they go over diagnoses. They go over, um, you know, de-escalation techniques. You know, uh, I come in and I used to talk about the sequential intercept model, options that individuals have, you know, the understanding of, you know, how to how to slow down and assess things differently because the entire time they're trained to go and take control of a situation and literally they have to unlearn that and say take a step back and 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 calm things down and you know everyone shouldn't be shouting orders there's a whole training component to that what is very key to this uh, which I love is they also have the in our own voice program and shout out to all the NAMI people here Um, but they have individuals with lived experience who come in and talk about what they went through um, and their encounters with law enforcement, how they were feeling, whether they were manic and how they perceived uh, their encounter with law enforcement. And then these individuals will sit down and have lunch with the officers over the lunch hour. So it, it really is about not just seeing individuals as the other, but really understanding their experience as well. And then the last day is um, is where they actually go in and are, are able to put their training into action. So they have actors from behavioral health agencies that come in and do scenarios for officers, and then the officers come in and they're supposed to put into effect what they have learned the first four days of their training. And, you know, I've, I've audited it multiple times just to kind of see how it's changed over the years. And the last day is really fascinating to me because there are officers who kind of revert back to their basic training. And then there are others who are able to switch gears and really put into effect what they have learned. And 
you know, I used to do this once a month and I knew the week after that training, I would get calls from officers. Uh, a majority of them would kind of go through their case um, cases and say, hey, I am now identifying all these individuals that really be, uh, belong in a therapeutic alternative. And that's the unit I used to run, the therapeutic alternative unit, and not through the standard criminal justice system. And, you know, can I staff cases with you? And then I would have officers who would describe in detail how they were able to put these de-escalation techniques to use out in the field right away. So um, it, it is a more intensive uh, program and one that I have really seen officers that, that really embrace it, change the manner in which they show up in their job. And, and stories upon stories to tell you um, on this, but that in essence is, is what the 40-hour crisis intervention training is. So you, you talk about things like de-escalation, uh, humanizing uh, people, and then, of course, uh, implementation. Um, uh, I actually, once again, am scribbling notes and thinking about all the things that I would love to ask you about, uh, the, the, the kinds of experiences that you've talked to some of these officers about, and if you feel that there is a longer uh, sort of ramification in terms of the training if they carry it with them. But uh, this does get us to our very first question, question which is, um, we know that I-940 mandated this uh, minimum of eight hours of SIT training, uh, and it's supposed to be in compliance by June 30th of this year. Do we know where we are in terms of compliance right now? So the eight hours was made a part of basic law enforcement um, academy years ago, but that was for the new officers coming in. And so there was this requirement that those that hadn't had it as part of it, they had to go ahead and, and take that. So I don't have the numbers um, with me, but um, the eight hour, again, as I've mentioned, and I know there are people who are talking about it, even even the 40 hours isn't enough, um, that the, the eight hours, you know, the officers are getting that. Um, but again, we are asking law enforcement to be behavioral health professionals. And that is frankly not a role that I would like for them to play. Because as long as we continue to give them the responsibility to respond to a behavioral health crisis, you're going to continue to criminalize behavioral health. And as we know, having a behavioral crisis is not illegal. And if it's not illegal, law enforcement should not be responding unless there is truly a danger to others or if there's a weapon involved. And I think this is where talking about the other models is really important. Uh, but then it, again, goes back to really being able to understand that actual danger versus the perception of danger. Amy, I want to bring you in here very briefly, because I know that you uh, have, I, I believe you've both spoken at conferences about this very thing, and certainly you've written uh, about the relative effectiveness of SIT. What would you like to add to what the senator has just said? Well, certainly, I mean, what we know about CIT training is that it does, it improves officer level outcomes in terms of knowledge, attitude, self-efficacy, their endorsement of de-escalation skills. We also have some data that suggests that it increases their um, the steps that they'll take to link people to services. So these are outcomes that you know initially are are, are good. If police are the only responders, um, you know, we need to make sure that they're prepared to do that. One of the things that we found too in the research is that actually you get even the best outcomes when you have officers that want to be CIT officers. And those are the ones that go through the training and then are dispatched to the calls. Um, 
the the other thing is that really the the full CIT model has more than the training. Um, really, key pieces of it are the partnerships between law enforcement and behavioral health and advocacy people with lived experience in the community to really come together to look at where are the the gaps in the crisis response system. Um, so it creates a good foundation to start looking at. You know, do we let's look at do we need a crisis triage center? Do we need to develop a non-law enforcement alternative. Um, so it could be a good foundation if you have those relationships in place across the different systems in the community. Um, but you know, the, the one thing is that many times though, it's really implemented as primarily training. And while we will always have to have officers that have the ability to respond effectively because there are on occasion those cases where there is a danger component, or there's a situation that's not pre-identified as mental health related that police get called to, they have to be able to respond and pull in the right resources. So I think it's an important piece and we have good evidence that it can have an impact just by itself, particularly if we're only focusing on the training piece, it can't solve a problem that really belongs to a different system. Let's talk about the second model then, which is dispatching police and mental health professionals together to respond to mental health crises in a police vehicle. This is uh, known as the co-responder model. Uh, Amy, can you just talk us briefly uh, through how this works logistically? Who does what, in what order? What's, what's kind of the protocol with this model? Well, there's some variation in how the model is implemented. So there's not one size fits all, but typically you'll have the clinician that rides with the officer. Um, if They may be dispatched to a hot call. So as the first response team, they may be dispatched at the request of an, a first responding officer that recognizes that this would be a good call or they do follow up or they do some combination of, of those three. But when they arrive on the scene, it would be the officer that would be first ensuring that the scene is safe and secure before the clinician would come in and, and talk with people. Um, and, you know, we do, we have some evidence that, that these types of teams can reduce unnecessarily emergency department transports and can provide some linkages to services that, you know, you know, over time people actually are utilizing more services following that call. Um, there's been some qualitative work, I believe, done in Australia and Canada, and they asked people with lived experience of mental illness and their family members, and you know, they indicated they preferred to have a clinician with the officer over just the officer on uh, his or herself. However, they also said what we really prefer is not to have the officer there. Well, thank you uh, for all that, because it's the perfect segue into what we're going to talk about next, which is the non-police first model. We're going to bring uh, Tim in right now. Uh, and so the CAHOOTS model is the unarmed mobile crisis and medic first response instead of police or fire in a non-police vehicle. Um, Tim, I, I would love for you, there's so much to, I've, I've listened to many interviews with you at this point, and I know that there's a lot to talk about with CAHOOTS. Uh, this is a program that has been quite successful in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, we'll get into depth as we go, but can you just give us a quick overview of how it works, how it's meant to work? Yeah, the 30,000-foot view of CAHOOTS. Yeah, um, I think the, the highlights are, uh, first and foremost, that we are not employees of the city. Um, we are uh, one component of Wiper Clinic, which is a federally qualified health center that contracts with the cities of Eugene and Springfield to provide the service. Uh, our, our staff teams for response are always going to be an EMT and a crisis worker. Um, EMTs need to be a basic or higher, and uh, we're looking for a mental health associate equivalent um, for credentials for our, our staff on the crisis side. Um, compared to that 40 hours of, of coursework that you'll go through as an officer in the CIT, 
our staff go through 30 hours in the classroom and then 500 hours of field training before they're able to work as part of that two-person response team. All of our calls for service are uh, received, triaged, and dispatched by the public safety system uh, here. And so that means that you know you can call 911 or you call the non-emergency line. Uh, but if, if the call takers and the dispatchers determine that CAHOOTS is the most appropriate response, they're able to get us sent to those calls. It also really allows us to uh, have a lot of interaction with law enforcement uh, kind of at that final uh, kind of point before police make contact with somebody in crisis by being able to hear those calls come through and, um, you know, really say, hey, this is more appropriate for us to go in and, and we can handle instead. Um, can very I just actually, briefly, I, I, just to, sure. to hop in very quickly, can you make that delineation for us again uh, between somebody calling 911 and calling for emergency services? Um, mm-hmm. Is that something that somebody would call 911 and that it would be diverted to emergency services? Or are there two separate numbers to call in Eugene? So there are two separate numbers that you can call in Eugene. There's the 911 line that, you know, everyone knows to call. Um, and then there's the non-emergency number. Um, Cahoots, because we're a non-emergency response, we don't go lights and sirens or code three to our calls. We want folks to call the non-emergency line. But we also recognize that for some, you may, there may be a perception that their experience is so emergent that 911 feels like the only appropriate number to call. And so, you know, because of that, that experience for somebody in crisis, we are also accessible by calling 911. Um, Generally speaking, CAHOOTS teams are going to be responding to calls for service for any number of crises that are really related to mental health, substance use and abuse, poverty and homelessness. Um, And only about 60% of our population is unhoused. Uh, And finally, I know that we've got some more questions to dive into, but to really kind of give, uh, you know, perspective around the scope of our impact, just within the city of Eugene in 2019, CAHOOTS teams responded to 18,000 calls for service. We facilitated 15,000 of those calls without other public safety apparatus. So without police, without fire, without EMS, 13,000 of those calls would have required one of those systems to respond in our place. And through all of that work, we only had to call for police cover 311 times. That is an extraordinary number, and this is something that I had a discussion with uh, Seattle uh, Fire Chief uh, Harold Scoggins about this very dynamic, and he he wanted to know uh, not only about those sorts of numbers, and I will also mention uh, and acknowledge uh, Redmond Police Chief Daryl Lowell, who's asking similar questions, Um, and I think what they would really like to know is who's making the decisions along the way. In other words, you have the individual actor who is calling up and saying, I see somebody who is in, in, in distress, or I myself am in distress. Let's say they call the wrong number. Let's say they call 911 when what's really warranted is cahoots, or they call the cahoots number and what's really warranted is, is 911. How do those two elements communicate, and how, how does Eugene ultimately make sure that the right people are responding to the right situation? Mm-hmm. So I think first we need to recognize that the non-emergency number that we tell people to call is the same non-emergency number that you call for police, for fire, for EMS. And so you call that non-emergency number and you're working your way through the phone tree, one for police, two for fire and EMS, three for cahoots. Uh, and so those calls are being answered by a 911 call taker and a non-emergency call taker. Um, every call that comes through that system is being triaged to really and assess to really determine what the appropriate response is, really kind of regardless of what you know an individual reports. So if somebody calls in and says, I need to get, get Bill Clinton out of my basement, that chances are that's not going to go to the fire department because it's unlikely that Bill Clinton is, is in your basement and refusing to get out. Right. And so, and that's a situation where it's going to start to be triaged to see really, you know, how, how when does this fit into the rest of the work that cahoots has? How is the relative urgency of this compared to, you know, the high, high acuity suicidal ideation or that person who's 
outside um, experiencing a housing crisis and it's the Pacific Northwest in November. So it's, you know, rain raining and the winds blowing sideways. So when the respondents show up, when the cahoots respondents show up, what do you do if a situation escalates? One of the things that we do, regardless of, of the specifics of the situation, to prevent escalation from occurring is first really recognizing how the environment where a crisis is occurring can inform escalation and can perform, inform uh, that potential for danger. Um, so we're really looking at, is this a safe place to have this interaction? Does this person feel safe where we are? If we're out in public, is there a big crowd around? Should we go sit in the back of the van? Is it a crowded apartment complex where everybody's going to be watching us, right? So there's a lot that we do in prevention um, that even extends to our uniforms. We try to look as far from police as we can. Um, but when, and that we, we accomplish that by wearing a t-shirt, a hoodie, some jeans. Um, but when we're in the interaction with somebody and things are starting to escalate, um, our first approach is going to be to utilize verbal de-escalation skills and non-verbal de-escalation skills. So our responders who are real tall guys, they're going to, we teach them to slouch down a little bit, kind of shift their posture, right? You know, really recognize how our presence in the space informs things. Um, from there, you know, it's, it's really about, you know, verbal de-escalation. And ultimately, if we get to a place where um, our words and our presence in that space aren't sufficient to maintain the safety of everybody involved, then we do call for police cover. You know, again, as I mentioned, those are rare. Um, 311 out of, times out of 18,000 calls for service. If we're calling for that police support, it's because we can't maintain the safety of that individual either due to level of intoxication uh, or because of the nature of the crisis has really prevented us from getting that contract for safety. When law enforcement shows up, CAHOOTS doesn't disengage. We don't walk away and say, all right, this is, you know, this is for the cops now. We sit down, the three parties, the officer, CAHOOTS, the individual in crisis, and really explain this is where we're at. We really don't want to have you go to the hospital in the back of a police car but where things are right now in this interaction, cahoots can't safely be the resource to transport you there. You know, so we really tried to provide those opportunities, and in that worst to to you know keep it voluntary and and keep it a cahoots interaction and, and tell that officer to disengage. Worst case scenario where we are you know ending up with an officer transporting that individual to the hospital, cahoots still follows and we still facilitate the same transfer of care that we would have done if we had brought that person in individually. You know, we still have an obligation to advocacy and and really. Um, reinforcing uh, you know what the needs are for that individual that that may be missed by that officer who's only shown up after things have really kind of blown up out of control you mentioned something really interesting when we spoke in advance of this and you said that everybody knows where everybody is in the cahoots model so that that suggests two things to me uh that, that you have uh, good integration with mm -hmm. the eugene uh, oregon police department and it also suggests that uh everybody is looking out for one another do, do you have that sense do you have that sense of support from the police officer the, the police department yeah, I mean, it's really important to recognize we are unarmed civilian first responders that are going out in these situations. We're not carrying pepper spray. We're not carrying a taser. Right? And and um, because we are still maintaining that role as behavioral health first responders, uh, you know, our partners in public safety really recognize kind of that potential risk. Um, and when we call for police cover on those rare situations, it almost feels like we've got it before we've even gotten our thumb off the mic. You know, there there is this real, I think, recognition, one, of, of the work we're taking off their plate um, and and two that 
if we're calling for their support, it's because we really need it. We've tried everything else, and this is the last resort. But I mean, 18,000 out of 311 is just an extraordinary uh, statistic. Um, and I want to talk about next funding and cost, specific, specifically with cahoots for a moment. And I'll just billboard the fact that uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden has a funding proposal in the American Rescue Plan to expand cahoots nationally. But first, just if you could, uh, Tim, give us a rundown of the cost of the cahoots program and, and really how does it compare to the cost of standard policing? Yeah, um, the total cost of operations for our program comes out to $2.3 million a year. Um, specifically within the city of Eugene, you know, where again, we have those really fantastic stats to look at. Um, the city of Eugene is, is contributing about $900,000 to the cost of our operations. Um, for that $900,000 that they're receiving, if you just look at things on um, uh, officer replacing cahoots for every single response, we're saving them one and a half million dollars. That's a conservative estimate. Um, but there's more than just the time that officers would have otherwise spent on these scenes. Um, what's harder to quantify and, and where we need support in, in really identifying this cost savings is looking at the impact on the criminal legal system. How many fewer court you know, how many fewer court dates are there, right? How many bench warrants are there reduced? How many fewer nights in jail are folks spending? That's that's where I think that there's a, a, a bigger value to this than just that equivalent cost of having officers, you know, labor uh, go towards that. Additionally, um, we're not just impacting the police system. We're also making a big impact in the hospitals and EMS. And when you include cost savings for ER diversions and reduced ambulance rides, as well as that potential cost savings to the police department, we see for our program that costs around 2.2, $2.3 million that we're saving almost $16 million to our community on a yearly basis. And I don't think that I can hyperbolize, and I, you know, Kat mentioned this, I'm going to mention it again, you're saving lives. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any question about that. You can't put a price on that. Right. Um, so I, I want to just briefly talk about some other non-police-first response models with you, because you have been insanely popular, man. Like, everybody has been setting you up for uh, for information on how to start programs in their community. Um, I know you've been consulting. Uh, I know we have some here in the state. I wonder if you could just run down a few that you have work with that you think are noteworthy that, that our audience should know about? Yeah, um, the three communities that really come to mind that are implementing programs that are closest to the CAHOOTS model are, um, you know, and this is going to be close to home for you all, uh, Olympia Washington's Crisis Response Unit um, and the Familiar Faces program alongside that. Um, we had a tremendous opportunity to come up to Olympia and to host some visitors down here in Eugene uh, to really work on developing their program. Uh, we also had a big role to play in Portland Street Responses rollout and um, facilitated a lot of the training and initial program design for Denver Star program as well. Um, we're also, you know, we're in talks with a lot of different cities uh, across the country, I, I'd say even throughout North America as well right now. But yeah, Denver, Olympia, and um, Portland are the three communities that have really been earnestly pursuing the CAHOOTS model with some variations to meet their unique community needs. Well, it's just tremendous. And uh, I, I want to talk uh, about some hybrid models here very briefly uh, with both Amy and the Senator. Uh, and as we do, I would like to acknowledge the Health One program here in Seattle uh, as we have Fire Chief Scoggins and John Ehrenfeld with us. Uh, this program dispatches firefighters uh, with social workers to non-emergency calls about substance abuse and mental health problems. Amy, I, I'll start with you first because I, I read quite a bit of what you had to say about this, uh, the, the fire department model in the 2019 Vera report. What are your thoughts generally on these sorts of programs? 
Um, I, I think, I mean, it, it's another approach to trying to get non-law enforcement response out to meet the needs of people. And certainly there's also some examples that um, from other countries in Sweden, they have a, an ambulance team that goes out. Um, I th in the Netherlands, they also have, it's basically a, a, a psych ambulance, but it's uh, EMTs that go out with psychiatric nurses. Um, and I, I think there's certainly some benefit and really getting getting a more appropriate response out to people to meet their needs. Um, and I think what what the specific team will look like might vary a little bit depending on the context and the community and, and what, what the pressing issues are. I will just mention to uh, the audience here, if you are aware of programs uh, either in our state or, or around the country or even across the planet, uh, do let us know. We would love to, to, to have that in our chat here. Um, Senator Dingra, I know you have many thoughts on this. Yes, always. Um, and I'll just say there are other programs. And this session, we put in actually a lot of funding to what we were calling the Safe Station Program, but it's much wider than that. It's exactly that is where our... Um, Firefighters have the ability to go out there and um, provide services to individuals experiencing behavioral health and mental health um, issues, the ability to do follow-up and get them uh, access to treatment, same dollars that um, our EMTs and other individuals can actually apply for to do exactly that, is do that outreach and connection to services for those individuals experiencing a behavioral health crisis. And again, all of this you know, recognizes that fundamental concept that I started off by saying that it is not illegal to have a behavioral health crisis. And so you have to have a lot of different options available for people to access treatment. And I do want to address some of the comments that are being made. You know, years ago, I used to actually also do a training for NAMI Eastside called What Happens When You Call 911 on Your Loved One? And talk about what people should expect, how to like make sure you're providing the information so it can be a safe encounter. And one of the comments that Jerry had put in chat is that years ago, there were so many family members that were told that the only way to get your loved one into treatment is to call 911, let them know that they were dangerous so that they could be civilly committed or go through a therapeutic alternative program to the criminal justice system because there weren't that many options there. And I'll just say, um, you know, I've only been in politics for four years, but those four years, my emphasis has been in behavior health and making sure that we do early intervention and that we provide access to crisis services outside of law enforcement. And so, you know, we are seeing a lot of these hybrid models all over the state. I've heard from Pierce County, there's a great program in Kitsap County, Seattle has it. Um, I know the city of Redmond is here where I live and they have hired a, a person who, who works with housing. Uh, and it really is to address services to the population that we're all talking about. You know, on that note, uh, I think we, we had so many questions about uh, transitioning. Um, and I, I'm going to jump ahead here uh, just a little bit because I really do want to circle back and talk about funding. But since you just mentioned that, Senator, um, we had somebody, uh, you know, we, Tim and, and others, and we're, we're having people in the chat bar listing off a number of programs that are working here in the state, as we mentioned, Olympia, Kirkland, Seattle. Um, Jim asks, is there any work at the state level about integrating those into a single statewide program? What an excellent question. I thought so too. Um, <laughs> just this year, 
we actually passed a bill that creates the 988 system. So 988 is a number that's been authorized by the federal government to be a behavioral health crisis number. So uh, there are a lot of states across the country who are working on this. I will say this is another one of the issues where Washington state is kind of leading the pack. And that sets up an alternative to 911. So that if an individual is having behavioral health crisis, that you can call 988, not 911. And what we will be working on for the next year is that coordination between 988 and 91. Uh, 911, 988, and our EMTs to really make sure that the um, the response is appropriate. We do not have a statewide behavioral health system. Right now, when you take a look at it, you have cities that are doing incredible stuff, you have counties that are doing it, but there is no statewide system. And so as part of this 988 bill that hopefully the governor will sign very, very soon, uh, we are doing a landscape analysis to really understand what are the resources that exist all over our state so we have an understanding of this. And the funding for all of these programs is very varied. Counties that have the mid, that's the mental uh, uh, illness drug dependency tax, the one-tenth of one percent sales tax, many of these programs are funded through there. Some of them are eligible for Medicaid funding. There is a combination of local and state dollars. And so I think this landscape analysis that is being conducted right now will be very helpful for the state of Washington to clearly understand what, where, where are all these programs? Who's funding them? And you know, how can we make sure we're creating a statewide uh, behavioral health system? And, and I'm very excited to be doing this work with so many of you on this call in the next few years. I'm glad you brought up the 988 system because we did have some uh, listener and viewer calls about that. And then that circles us right back to funding. And Tim, I will ask you, uh, you know, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden has a provision in the uh, ARP, the, the, that is the rescue plan, that would fund cahoots for other uh, cahoots like programs rather nationally. Uh, what can you tell us about this and, and where, where it sits right now? Yeah, um, this, this bill would utilize Medicaid funds to uh, provide 85% matching grants for the first three years of mobile crisis programs, really helping them get through that pilot phase, uh, start to demonstrate those real cost savings and work with communities to uh, you know, bring in more sustainable long-term funding. Uh, where things are at right now is that um, you know, we did get what uh, Senator Wyden has called a down payment on that bill with the passage of its funding through the ARP. Um, right now, we are in that real fun bureaucratic place of trying to figure out what does this look like you know when we actually get out and apply it um you know we we have some some hurdles ahead of us um but one of the things that we're really looking at is as we um, formalize this as this becomes uh, you know kind of part of communities that we really want to recognize that um, every community is going to have really unique needs and with such we need to make sure that there are uh, broad definitions of uh, you know appropriate staffing models that can be applied um, what Camus needs is going to be different than what Spokane or Seattle or Bellevue need, right? And so as such, with this funding, we need to make sure that we aren't being too restrictive uh, with who it is that can be a part of those responses and that we allow them time to really grow. Um, one of the things that we are worried about is um, if you mandate that a program is 24-7 right out of the gate, it can be really challenging to, one, figure out how to staff 
you know, that resource overnight, but also really to build the community's awareness that that resource is there after hours. Um, Cahoots wasn't 24-7 until uh, we had been operating for over 25 years, you know. So with this bill, what we're really looking at is making sure that um, that funding can really be br- as broadly applied as, as communities need. And you're talking about transitioning and implementation, and boy, do we get a lot of questions about that. And Amy, you've written a lot about this. So, uh, you know, in fact, I'll just read a question directly. Rebecca asks, what advice would you give to others who are looking to duplicate what Cahoots has done in their community? So, Amy, in your mind, what are some of the first basic steps that a community can take to transition to a non police first type model uh, in, in this situation? I think, you know, the first step is really bringing your system and your community stakeholders together to really look at, you know, what what resources you have, what types of call are you really thinking about that you want to provide this non-law enforcement response to, um, gathering some data and looking at that um, and, and, and coming up with that plan that way, but really bringing in um, not just your mental health system and your law enforcement, but bringing in members of the community that are going to be most impacted to find out what it is that they're looking for as well. Um, what type of response is important to them? Um, you know, how they, what that response should look like, how they want to access it. Um, so again, a really a lot of it starts with bringing people together and, and really finding out what people uh, are needing. You know, each of you has alluded to, uh, certainly Senator has and Amy, you have as well, um, just sort of dovetailing on what you're saying, Amy, that communities of color often do not feel safe in this scenario. They do not feel safe dialing 911. Um, And so when you and I were speaking in preparation, Amy, you made the point that we absolutely need to ensure that these programs aren't just for middle class white communities, uh, but should actually prioritize communities that don't traditionally have a good relationship with the police. Uh, Any thoughts on, on how we might implement something like that. And, and Senator Dingra, hold that thought, because I would like to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, absolutely. I think, you know, you know, the big danger is that we have these alternatives to law enforcement with the caveat, unless it's dangerous. And there's so much bias in how we assess dangerous that we need to be really careful. I mean, we, we do need to assess dangerousness and send police for support when it's necessary, but we need to be very careful careful on how we're doing that. And I think an important piece is making sure that we have representatives from the communities that are most negatively impacted by policing at the table in planning what we're going to do. But also, you know, when we have a workforce issue too, we want to make sure that we're bringing in and we're hiring people to work in these programs that are familiar with the communities that we want to serve. Um, So making a pathway for, for entry into these jobs that are desperately needed for people from the communities that we want to serve instead of having, you know, um, somebody from way another part of, of the area coming in and trying to provide services. Um, I do think one of the things we have to look at, those are workforce capacity um, and, and kind of identifying what, what these teams need to be made up of, what types of roles, and then really developing and supporting that workforce that we need to do this and making sure that they're paid reasonably so that we can get people that want to stay in those positions as well. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> that, that seems to be a theme that is happening right now. It's, uh, it's on everybody's mind. Uh, Senator Dingra, your thoughts? Um, thank you on, on, on the race question because I, I um, do want to talk about, about that specifically. So there are two components of it. One is right the distrust of law enforcement. And we have seen over and over again that that simple encounters have turned to deadly. So there is a huge mistrust um, between 
communities of color and law enforcement. So that's one component, right? That prevents them from calling 911. Second is also stigma. We haven't talked about this. In Asian countries, Hispanic countries, um, they don't want to talk about mental illness. They don't want to acknowledge it. And so many times when you talk about that early intervention component or even the willingness to call and ask for help, it's very complicated because we have to make sure we're making inroads. And this is where, again, I would give a shout out to all the agencies that have been trying to work um, in that arena and really making sure we're destigmatizing mental illness. And so those two things are, are, are very important. And um, on the issue of law enforcement and trust, this is something that that's why we're really hoping that the 988 system and the implementation of that that we are involving communities of color right from the beginning so that we can start building that trust and letting them know that there is a different system, that a system that we're hoping will be more responsive uh, to the needs and really head on dealing with that implicit bias um, and, and trying to really not dance around that issue, but be direct in the manner in which we deal with it. And I'll just add, this goes to the workforce issue that was mentioned because we know from medical delivery, right? When you go even for an appointment for physical health, um, you're treated differently if your doctor looks like you versus not. We know the racial disparities when black women seek medical treatment in the way they're treated versus our um, white counterparts. You know, that is the reality of physical health. It is so much more when it comes to behavioral health. And so making sure that we have individuals with lived experience, individuals who come from the communities they want to serve, so that that delivery of services is, is actually impactful and real. And um, again, you know, this is work we continue to do and will continue to do, but the important thing is to say what these problems are in an honest way and make sure we're working towards real solutions. I had wanted at some point to get to uh, some of Amy's work on the stigma of mental illness. Uh, we simply don't have time this evening, but uh, I will provide uh, some reading uh, for people in the show notes uh, because I think it's very, very important. So look, from everything that we have read and learned and discussed tonight, the non-policing model seems to have many advocates and it certainly seems to have more than its share of upsides. So I'll just ask each of you if you have a sense of where the resistance is coming from. From. Tim, do, do you have a sense, I mean, in, in your community of, of, where, of where resistance comes from? And in, in, I'll, I'll actually extend the question. The newer programs that you are consulting on in other cities, do you have a sense of where the resistance is coming from uh, there? Are there specific entities, individuals, elected officials? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, thinking about our local community where we do see some detraction and, and that criticism is, is around those who... Um, hold firm to the myth, the, the magnet myth that kind of, you know, right, if you build it, they will come. And this assumption that because Cahoots is here, that is why we have the highest incidence of homelessness per capita. Let's not look at, you know, the cost of housing, the loss of timber jobs, and how there hasn't been an economic boom in Oregon since that. Um, we just focus on Cahoots as this enabling thing. Um, outside of our local community, where there's that perception of enabling by those few critics that we do experience, um, the biggest resistance that we've seen to this model is generally coming from police unions, where there is a lot of concern um, primarily over the contracts. Uh, if if a program like Cahoots is coming in and taking a slice out of, you know, that the calls for service pie for that patrol division, 
that could potentially impact their contract. If you cut too many calls, and this is something we ran into in the city of Portland, you know, it was really just this idea that there was too much risk to the overall call volume for uh, the staffing level that, that, that Portland Police Bureau had that they were worried they were going to be forced to lay folks off if they implemented this program. Well, you know, it's it's no secret that we have a number of activists watching and listening right now. We are, of course, the Indivisible Town Hall series. Uh, many people are going to be looking to take action here to advocate on behalf of non-police first uh, type response uh, units in their communities. And I'll just ask each of you, uh, because we're actually in the process right now, the organizers and I are in the process of putting together a call to action around this. So if people are looking to push their local officials, elected and otherwise, to a adopt one of these models, what do you think would be an effective approach and which officials should they focus on? Amy, do you have thoughts here? I think, I mean, in terms of getting local communities to adapt these models, you know, going to city council, going to mayors, um, putting coalitions together to really show that this is what the community is pushing for. Um, as a researcher, I like to think is bringing some research data is helpful. Um, you know, and even just the data from Cahoots showing that they've been able to respond to so many calls with and only needing police backup on a small number that they've safely been able to do that. Um, so I think that's important as well. And I think there's starting to be more data looking at 911 systems to being able to identify there's a lot of calls that just don't need to have police involved and we can shift that. So I think bringing some of that data as well is really important. And then, Tim, I'll just ask you, because you have been consulting with so many different cities, uh, are you seeing pressure campaigns and where are they directed? Yeah, some of the pressure campaigns that we're seeing are directed at those exact you know, bodies that Amy's talking about, right? You know, the, the policymakers, um, those who hold that power within the city system. So mayors, city managers, councilors, commissioners, um, chiefs of police, um, those generally seem to be where um, there's a lot of uh, focus, you know, a lot of energy put into. Um, I would also highlight, for instance, uh, uh, public advocate Jamani Williams in New York City put out this just fantastic report on uh, his recommendations for crisis response within New York City. Uh, and so it's it's really, you know, we, we put these people in these positions of power and it's our obligation as those constituents to hold them accountable, um, to say, hey, we see the good things that you're doing and here's what we still need to do. Uh, Senator Dingra, as the, the lone elected official on our panel, I will put the, the perhaps tricky question to you. Where do you think we can best apply pressure? Well, this is great because our current state budget actually put in all kinds of grant money for um, this, what we're calling the Safe Station Program. So there are cities that are interested in starting um, some kind of um, alternative to law enforcement responding to these calls, there's grant money available. Please apply to Department of Commerce. Um, there should be uh, quite a bit of it this session and then reach out to me if those funds run dry. I don't think they will uh, before we get to the next uh, session. And um, so please start that process right now. And for all of you, make sure you call your local electeds and tell them to get money from the state on these grants to get that program running. And while I know that not one thing can be the answer, I really have very high hopes for 988. And it is going, to, the planning is starting. Uh, it's going to be a few years. And so please stay plugged in, pay attention to what's going on. But that is exactly where the plan is for Washington State, is to have a statewide behavioral health crisis response system that has uh, mental health professionals or behavioral health professionals responding, coordinating with 911 if needed, 
but uh, really it's about living up to that principle that having a behavioral health crisis is not illegal. And so let's make sure the response is appropriate and effective. I think we're going to leave it here tonight. I I will just say from my perspective, this has been an enormously, enormously impactful discussion tonight. Um, Again, I want to thank uh, Sally Fouchet and uh, Heather Kelly for for helping put this together. And of course, thanks to my partner in crime, Kat Pepkin, um, and also uh, Louise Pathé, everybody with Wynn. And of course, thank you to all of our amazing panelists. Dr. Amy uh, Catherine Watson, thanks to you. Thank you, I was glad to be here. Tim Black, thanks to you, my friend. Thank you. Pleasure. And Senator Makadinger, always a pleasure to speak with you. Me too. I love being uh, talking to all of you guys. Thank you so much for having this really important discussion. Special thanks to Sally Fouché, Heather Kelly, Laura Van Tosh, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pate, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to get in touch, our email is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.